Hello, I'm Clover Stroud and welcome to Tiny Acts of Bravery. My guest this week is chartered psychologist and author Kimberly Wilson. Throughout this first series of Tiny Acts of Bravery, I've been fascinated to hear so many different personal perspectives and stories around bravery. But I wanted to speak to Kimberly for a professional clinical take on bravery, and this was a really interesting and rewarding conversation. My chat with Kimberly was very focused as she's extremely smart and articulate. She doesn't waste any words at all, as well as being hugely warm and engaging to talk to. We talked about the specific differences between courage and bravery and the incredibly important role that therapy and articulating emotions can have on helping us all face our fears and therefore enabling us to live richer, bolder lives. I really like talking to Kimberly, especially about the mirage of adult life and really delving deep into the idea that all of us are in our own brave ways, making it up as we go along. I enjoyed this conversation a lot. I know from the messages that you send me on Instagram that a lot of you are finding these chats that I'm having with different people on my podcast, Tiny Acts of Bravery, really helpful and useful. Next week will be my final guest of series one and I have a real treat in store for you, so please stay tuned. And of course, it goes without saying that if you had time to rate and review, leave a comment or share on social media or tell your friends about the podcast, it would be incredibly helpful and really appreciated by me. Kimberly Wilson, thank you so much for coming on Tiny Acts of Bravery. It's a real um, honour to have you here. And I've had a, you know, I've had a wide range of different guests talking about how bravery has manifest in their lives mm. and uh, how to be brave and sort of different things that they've done. You are a psychologist. So to have a kind of clinical sort of professional take on bravery mm. and what it is and how we can be braver is um is really great. Thank you very, very much. Oh, for being my absolute here. pleasure. And I I mean I won't claim to talk for the entire profession, but I will do my best to bring that kind of uh, perspective. Well thank you. Would you start off by defining what bravery means to you? Sure. To me, I think, and this is probably more my personal perspective than a kind of uh, academic one, it's the willingness and capacity to act in the face of fear and often to act in alignment with your values. And I think that actually one of the things that values allows you to do is to generate the either motivation or the courage or the strength to to do the thing that you you need to do mm. um even though it frightens you and how do you think that bravery because bravery and courage are often used mm. sort of in the same context how do you think they differ from one another i'm not sure they necessarily do. I suppose bravery brings a connotation of something very big, mm. you know, a kind of a, a strident act, um, a big act, you know, mm. that someone is defending a nation or, you know, battling giants in some way. Whereas I certainly think that courage can, well, <laughs> as the podcast says, can be absolutely tiny and minuscule. And it can be things that 
will be imperceptible to anyone but yourself. They can sometimes just be little tiny shifts internally mm. that allow you to behave differently and behave more authentically. You know, I, I've often said that I think therapy is one of the most courageous things you can do because I think it's it's very, very easy to avoid yourself. And it's very easy to avoid the parts of yourself that you feel shameful about, that you hope no one ever has to see or hear or encounter, that you'd much rather just pretend never existed. Mm. The things not only that have been done to you, but the things that you have done to somebody else. I, I, I really like the line that says, somebody's therapist knows all about you because <laughs> we like to believe that, you know, we are the ones that have been harmed or that, you know, we have suffered, but there is someone out there who, for whom you have been the villain of the piece. And mm. looking at that, being able to encounter that in an unflinching way can take huge amounts of, of courage, as well as I think one of the things I think therapy does broadly is to help people to stand up to bullies, whether those are internal bullies or bullies in their real lives. And often that comes with having what I call the conversation, which is the point at which you set aside the prevaricating, the avoidance, the the kind of shallow conversations, the platitudes, the pretense, and you say, actually, this is who I am. This is who I experience you to be. And can we have a real conversation about who we are mm. and the impact perhaps of both of us on each other so that we can have a real relationship? Yeah, I mean, that's su such a fascinating idea. And it is you know, one of the very, very hardest things to do, isn't it? With somebody so. that you're close to and there is conflict within your relationship. How, mm. how do we do it? <laughs> uh, slowly. <laughs> I think, I think there's a, I think there is a process. I mean, broadly, I think there are certain steps and some of those steps are simply pragmatic, which is, is it safe to have this conversation, you know? And that might be kind of um, about physical safety, but also emotional safety. So sometimes perhaps someone is trying to set up a conversation with, or often what will happen is that someone is coming to therapy and they are, the problem is with the person that's funding their therapy, whether it's a partner or a parent or something like that. Mm. And it's actually the person I need to have a conversation with, I'm actually relying on their support in order to get me to the point of having the conversation. So there's a, there are questions about pragmatism and safety that are really important to take into consideration and to think about. But I think more broadly, you need to be clear that the benefits of having the conversation outweigh the discomfort and the potential costs. And then before you even start to think about it, you need to have the skills and support to be able to tolerate the discomfort. Because I think one of the things that really, and, and that's where the courage comes in, one of the things that makes people avoid difficult conversations, conflict, is often just the physical mm. discomfort, the awkwardness, the 
cringe, the the stress, the anticipation, the agitation. Often that that feeling is so unpleasant, so painful that it's much easier to just avoid it altogether. But when in the avoidance comes the compromising of oneself, perhaps the the extension of a lie mm. or or just a, a dishonest encounter. Um, but also, of course, you cannot have a real relationship. You cannot feel safe in a relationship that isn't honest. And so people really have to come to a point where they're saying to themselves, what really matters to me more than just, just having this person in my life or just having the appearance of a relationship is having a relationship where I can be myself and feel accepted. And if not be accepted, then I feel at least that I haven't compromised my own integrity and who I know myself to be or who I want myself to be. And that can be a very courageous act, I think. You had a sort of initiative called, if that's the right word, the mm. year of no fear. Will you tell <laughs> me about that? Um, so in relation to bravery. Yes. And it's it's kind of something I did for myself. So um, every year, I kind of stopped doing it since I've gotten busier, but instead of a New Year's resolution, I would give my years a theme. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the year of no fear, as well as just rhyming, sounded like <laughs> a good idea. And the basic premise was that if I wanted to do something, it was really kind of understanding that most of the things that stop us from achieving things are mostly in our heads. And it's about either the discomfort or the anxiety or Sometimes they're one and the same thing. So if there was something that I wanted to do um, or try, and the only thing really stopping me was, and I would say an unrealistic fear. So like, you know, don't go and play with a lion because it might bite you. That's a realistic fear. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, if I wanted to try rock climbing, but I was afraid that I might not be very good at it, or I was afraid that I might scratch myself, you know, mm. that kind of thing, um, then fear wasn't a legitimate reason. Um, and I was just going to do it anyway. And it was one of the most fun and transformative years of my life. And, and so much so I was living in a shared house at the time. And so much so that my housemates, you know, having seen me go through it, did it for themselves and, and had the same kind of experience. And it was, it was a real lesson in, I think, in the nature of fear and in and encountering fear. Um, and sometimes, you know, having a respect for fear, but also knowing when fear was just to be ignored um, and kind of ridiculed. <laughs> um, and so I've been kind of toying with the idea of whether I could extend that and make that something that was more accessible for other people. Because, I mean, broadly, that's what happens in, in therapy is it's people's beliefs about themselves. It's their beliefs about their limitations or their capacities, um, their fears about who they are, or, you know, one of the things that comes up so often is, uh, if I change in this way, so I've come to therapy to change, but if I change in this way, people will say, oh, that's not like you, 
well, that's not who I think you would you are, you know, as if it's a kind of counterfeit version of them or they're faking it or they're lying or they're trying mm. to pretend to be someone else rather than that they are either transforming or presenting a, a more real version of who they are. Um, and so often it's about helping people get over the fear of the criticism or critique of other people when they actually show up as them as them as their real selves. Why is the idea of showing a different version of yourself so scary? Is it because we don't like the idea of people changing? We don't like change in general, in fact. Mm -hmm. I think it's partly that. We 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 don't like change. Mm. I think it's when we see someone change forward slash better themselves, we can sometimes see it as an implied criticism. And it's that kind of thing that happens when someone says, oh, I don't drink or I'm vegetarian. Mm. And people try to go, oh, you know. Yeah. Oh. And then people start to try to like justify themselves or they, yeah. or they feel guilty or they try to get you to, oh, just have one drink because your position, your stance, um, your adherence to your own values, your immovability feels like or is interpreted as a criticism mm. or an arrow that is thrown. Mm. And so we try to get people to stay the same um, so that I don't really have to look at myself, thank you very much, or I don't have to encounter the contradictions in myself that I haven't quite settled down with or um, chosen a side on. Um, so I think we don't like change. We sometimes feel criticised by people's own attempts at self-improvement, if you want to call it that. But also because partly, well, the brain entirely works on prediction. The brain works on um, a kind of uh, kind of statistical probability mechanism. So we don't encounter the world moment to moment. We predict what is going to happen. And then if on the odd chance that that prediction doesn't come true, we course correct. Um, and that's why humor works because we have a prediction of what, you know, the punchline is going to be. And mm. then it's something different. And mm. it's like, oh, the, that incongruity is experienced as, as humor. Right. And then we have to shift our worldview. And so when we encounter that in our relationships and also in ourselves, we expect our friends to respond a certain way when we tell them a story. We expect a certain set of reactions when we say, oh, listen to what happened to me today. Mm -hmm. um, and when someone doesn't behave in that way, it feels incongruous. It feels unpleasant. I feel less sure now of how you're going to be and what that means for me. Um, and so it's, it's uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. So we quite like people to behave in the ways that we predict they will mm. because it allows us to have a sense of um yeah predictability expectation safety in our in our relationships why are we so obsessed by the idea that other people's behavior is a is a reflection or reaction <laughs> on ourselves in some way or another and it's and it's that getting worse because of social media mm. why is it so hard to look out mm -hmm. and look at somebody else's true place and perspective? Mm. Um, I'm not sure. I will throw out a few ideas and we'll see mm. what sticks. Um, I think one is an innate human tendency to conformity. And that's really, really strong. Mm. And we see that in, you know, those classic 
psychological studies where people are presented, you know, with three confederates, three people. You walk into a room and you're the naive person. You're the real participant. And there will be three other people and you ask them a question, is this line the same length as this line? And it's patently untrue. It's clearly, it's clear that they're different lengths, but all three people before you, four or five people Mm -hmm. before you say, oh yeah, it's exactly the same. And because you don't want to be the odd one out or before, because you're confused about what's happening, maybe you even start to question your own sense of reality, you conform. And so our our pressure to conform, even in the face of clearly false information, is very, very, very strong. And I think what's happened in the current technological landscape is that there are some models of human experience that are forefronted as ideal and good. And that can be measured for the first time ever, really, in human existence. what feels like quantifiable ways. Like one face will get 7,000 likes, Mm. another face, not so many. Mm. One body will be presented as the ideal and another not so much. And so we are presented with a, 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 a more and more narrow idea of what human experience is or should be, but also presented with this idea that it's quantifiably better. You know, we now have a value that Mm. we can place on it. And I think in that sense, there is a very strong pressure to conformity. I think alongside that, there is, as you touched on earlier, this um, atomization really of society that now we are much more likely to move away from our low locations of origin, our families of origin, and find ourselves really without our tribes. And I guess in an evolutionary context, that makes you incredibly vulnerable. It's very frightening. Mm. And you will look for the dominant group, or at least one that seems successful, to assimilate with. Um, And so there's a kind of safety in numbers. I guess we all have a tendency to social comparison because we're always trying to find out where we sit in the pecking order. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that's quite a natural human tendency. Um, but again, in our history, we would have comparing ourselves to people who were largely similar to us, you know, whether that was from the same geographic location, the same accent, the same, you know, genetics in some way. And now that's not happening. So I guess they're there is a greater risk that we end up feeling inferior because the types of people we are comparing ourselves to are enormously different to what they would have been. And I suppose that might then generate a sense of insecurity about whether we're good Mm. or not. It's really interesting hearing you talking as well because you're creating a a very um, articulate and vivid portrait of where... We feel as, well, many of us, I mean, this is mass generalizations Mm. of human beings as, you know, living um, in a kind of um, insecure, uncertain, massively varied, confusing world, essentially. What I'd like to talk to you about now Mm. is like how we, within that context, how we 
are mindful and careful of other people's feelings and their lives, but also how we can learn to live in a more courageous, I suppose, and brave and individual way, le- caring mm-hmm. less mm-hmm. about what all those other people are thinking whilst not being careless of mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose one of the probably most useful places to start is to try to relinquish any idea that there is a right way of mm. doing things. Mm. And I feel like that's coming up more and more, or it's it's coming up more intensely with more conviction. So years ago, people might say, oh, well, you know, I don't have a huge number of friends. Is that okay? There'd be more kind of questioning around yeah. it. And now people will say, everyone has more friends than me. There's something wrong with me. I should have more friends. And there's this kind of real conviction about the right way to live, the right way to be, the right way to be a successful human in the world. And often it's that conviction that is more problematic than the actual conditions of their lives. So in this example, maybe they've got five good friends and actually the data tells us that's a good number and probably enough. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's, you've got someone in there that you can call at 3am if Mm. you're, you know, your tire explodes, whatever, but they will be looking again online and out in the world and say, no, but shouldn't I have like a big gang of girls that I can go out and have brunch with every week? And we're all, you know, Mm. and it's their conviction that this image is how it should be, which is more harmful because in that comparison, in that distance between their actual experience and their idealized experience, they experience, they feel inadequacy, lacking, failure. There's something wrong with them. They've, they've missed a lesson somewhere. It is in that gap that they're in pain. Whereas if they could reorient and say, actually, what I have is lovely and it's beautiful Mm. and it's important and Mm. it's valuable in and of itself, they would feel better. So I think if we could, if we could relinquish this idea that there is one way to live a successful human life, that would be fantastic. If we could find some way to move away from the comparisons so that you reorient and think, actually, where am I? Mm. And how does it feel to have what I have? That would be fantastic. Um, my personal position is one of understanding the absurdity of right. life. Yeah. Um, and absurdity on a kind of broad existential level where sometimes I just think, how mad is it that I was born here? You know, I'm not, I wasn't born in the middle of the dark ages and I'm out kind of hunting and trying to pound, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, there's, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's absolutely absurd that I was born here in this time, in this place, in this rock, in the middle of infinite space around a giant cloud of burning helium. Like, it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's kind of mad. And I think what I find helpful about that, about that position is that it, and of course, if you're, if you have a kind of stronger religious or kind of faith based belief, that's the difficult position to come to. But what I find helpful about it is that it removes any sense of a plan that I need to work out, a path that I just need to find and 
uh, and otherwise I'm just kind of groping around in the dark, <laughs> failing at finding the path. Mm. You know, because I think, again, people have this idea that in the, all of ex- obscurity of their life, like their life is a dark room and they need to like look for the light switch or find the path in that dark and then just get on the path and stay on the path and that that will be a success. And that wildly diminishes the opportunity and capacity for who you can be or what might work for you or even the many things that might work for you. And so an absurdist position offers an opportunity that actually there's no plan and you can do what you like Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you can make it work and you can find value and beauty in it. And, And I think from there, it's almost less about being courageous. It is, but it's also about saying, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I and I can just I can just give it a go. Mm. It's quite freeing, I think. Really freeing. No, and I have a uh, as you're talking, I have a vision of like myself or a human being like falling but not falling in a in a terrifying way, but kind of tumbling through life because let's face it that's all that any of us are doing. This is we? what I say. I say that we are all uh, it's all Buzz Lightyear, mm. that we're all falling with style. Mm. <laughs> Everybody thinks they're flying. Everybody looks outside of them and thinks, that person has learned to fly. That person is flying. <laughs> that person is doing great. No, everyone is just mm. staggering around. Yeah. <laughs> doing their best with what they have and making it look good. Mm. I'm convinced that there are no real adults. Uh, people will often say to me, you know, when will I feel like an adult? <laughs> like an adult. <laughs> I think like, we all know that feeling. <laughs> it must be now, but it doesn't feel like it. <laughs> exactly. Like, when, do I, when will I feel like I've got it all together? And I look at them and I just say, that will never mm. happen. There, there are no real adults. They do not exist. We are all just giant babies mm. walking around doing our best. And again, that's a kind of absurd position. It's kind of like, just take the pressure of yourself to feel like you've got it together and just do what you can with what you've got. I love the idea that bravery is to do with absurdity as well and realising that sense of the absurdity of human life. It's so, I've never heard it before and it's so, it is so kind of liberating and it's so joyful and it sort of feels, because when you, you know, if you think all the stuff about living your best life and doing the meditation and doing your steps and drinking your water and Mm. being grateful and going in nature and having, you know, that makes you feel as though, as you said, that there is an answer somewhere. And of course there isn't. And life is full of, and so much kind of oddness and tragedy and Mm. trauma and excitement and beauty. And one of the things about this podcast has been having incredible conversations with people who have dealt with, you know, real terrible tragedy mm. and and they have been so bold and big to talk to mm. because that sense of human life mm. terrible things happen and terrible things have happened for millennia and life does extraordinarily go on and i suppose that's slightly linked to that idea of the ab- absurdity of it as well that ultimately of course our lives matter and of course our relationships matter but also Nothing really matters too. <laughs> this is absolutely, this is, you have to hold what we call the dialectic or the contradiction, the tension between everything is important, mm. but also nothing is important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, and 
it's it's important that you you know get to work on time in in one context but also it's no one is going to die if you take a sick day off work yeah, you know yeah. things will keep going yeah. without you and i think it's that and i think that's very very difficult to hold that tension mm. also because it feels paradoxical and contradictory and 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 perhaps a bit mad <laughs> <laughs> but i can't think of another way through where you can hold on to a sense of perspective because if everything is important you will wind yourself up so tight yeah. that you will not have any real existence and if nothing is important then then you're in the the world of anarchy and chaos and mm. nothing happens nothing moves there is no forward trajectory of any kind so i think there is there has to be an attempt at holding some central position and to understand and again, try to relinquish a sense of control because you could be doing all of the things. You could be, you know, waking at six and going to that spin class and drinking your green juice and going for a walk in the forest and fall into a ditch and get eaten by absolutely, a bear. Like you can, be, yeah. <laughs> you can be doing all the things and life will happen mm. anyway. So I think it's really about trying, having a plan, working towards something, having things that you like, but also holding those things very loosely Yeah. so that you have the opportunity when you are so moved to, to try something else mm. or f be in a different kind of way. Mm. Again, that conviction that there is one way. There's an answer. There is an answer. Mm. And what nobody wants to hear is that it's all trial and error. Mm. You just work it out. You try this for a bit and inherent in that, necessary to that process is making a mistake. Mm. You have to. Mm. It's unavoidable. And again, that's coming, getting comfortable with the discomfort of what we call failure, but which is just learning. You have to get on board with the fact that this is trial and error in all things. You know, if it wasn't trial and error in love, we'd all be married to the very first person we kissed. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, our first partner. And, you know, many of us will be grateful that that's not the case. Mm. Um, it's trial and error in working out what kind of exercise works for you, how you like your body mm. to feel and move, what food works for you. And again, that will change through life because if it didn't, we'd all be still drinking breast milk. Like if things didn't change and move and mm. translate, then we'd all be exactly where we were when we started. And so we have to, I think, get on board with the idea that we can, we'll try something now. It might fit for a while. And then we'll have to evaluate and then we might have to try something else. And, then it, and that life itself is an iterative process. And that is risk taking as well. So do you think that there is, that, you know, that is a kind of small, this is called tiny acts of mm. bravery, a small definition of a way that we can be brave as well? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think so. And it's often that thing where you look at somebody else and think, ooh, I wish I would do that. Yeah. That it, and, and that is that internal message, which is you're stopping yourself from trying that thing. And maybe you buy the roller skates. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and even in the quiet of your own living room, yeah. you know, you give it a go. And even if it doesn't turn into a, a new career <laughs> or a new hobby, you've demonstrated to yourself that you're still open to experience. And that can be really important. And therefore, that is also living with creativity, the impulse to want to sort of change and do more and try out the roller skates or the 60s disco <laughs> or different ways of communicating within mm. a relationship. Mm. And that feels 
well, liberating and exciting and, and achievable as well. You know, I, th- I think also we talked about bravery doesn't have to be like massive acts. Not it's little, little things. Can you tell me about a, an occasion where you've been particularly brave in your life? Mm. Um, I did think about this. Obviously, you don't, <laughs> don't come on a podcast like this. And, um, and it was really interesting because I'd had this, and it's what got me thinking about values because I'd had this one incident in my mind. And then it was only, I was like, why did I do that? And I remembered the earlier incident. Um, and so it was a few years ago now. And I was walking with my partner at the time. We were just walking around the park and near a park. And across the road, and it was kind of one of those corner of my eye sort of, across the road, there was a kind of commotion. You could see a group of people standing around and you could see whatever the incident was. And when I looked over, there was a, a grown man, like older man, and he was shaking and pulling a child. She looked like to be about five years old and shouting at her in the middle of the street. It was like two in the afternoon in the summer. And, and I just, you know, and there were groups of adults standing around. And I had no idea what was happening, but I ran across the road and I put myself between this man and this little girl. And he then turned to me and said, oh, you know, what are you doing? You know, I'm, I'm her granddad. And my partner at the time had just had a, a shoulder surgery. And so he kind of tried to step in and stop. Mm. And I was wor- then worried about him. <laughs> um, and I just, and then afterwards he, he went off and I took a picture of him. And I, I, but afterwards I was standing on the road and I was shaking and crying. And other people, the people who had been standing, came over and, and thanked me for intervening. And I was like, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't doing anybody a service, and I, and I hadn't thought about it. It and think about it now, it's still, it's really unsettling. But they, they were telling me, oh, it was such a brave thing for you to do. So brave, so brave. Mm. And what, it, what I remembered more recently was that. Years and years ago, so this is probably going back 15 years now, at least, I'd been on a bus and it was back in the era of bendy buses, um, <laughs> which were a disaster. Um, and it was a packed bus. It's a bus coming up from Elephant and Castle again in the middle of the summer, absolutely packed bus. And a, a young, like an adolescent had got on, so I would guess 15, 16, with who I assumed was his little brother, 11. And it was an absolutely packed bus. And it started out looking like, like joshing. Just like, um, it, like maybe he was, what is that, that Jedi or Vulcan death grip or whatever it is, you mm. know, the, what kids do to each other, Chinese burns and all of that stuff. Yeah. And it started out looking like that. And the younger boy started out giggling and laughing and, oh, get off me, get off me. And then afterwards, he was, he was in distress and he was in pain. And, and he started crying and there were at least a good 10, 15 people who could see what was happening. And everybody, everybody did that thing where they kind of look at the person who's doing it and try to almost shame them with their eyes into stopping. Everyone was like, they were trying to say, I can see what you're doing and let me use the pressure of that social shame to stop you. And he didn't. The older boy just didn't stop. He did, did not care. And 
he got off the bus. They both got off the bus. And I remember thinking, I remember putting myself in his shoes, the little boy, and thinking, he was in real pain and there were 10, 15 adults around him who didn't intervene. Mm. And I just thought, I cannot, I couldn't bear being him and thinking, someone can see me in pain and not intervene. And it wasn't, I don't think it was conscious, maybe it was conscious, but I think it was at that point that I just thought, if I'm ever in the position to intervene again, Mm. I want to believe myself to be and to be the kind of person who will intervene. And I think that's what happened with the when I was outside the park. With a child. Mm. No, and I can see, I, I'm, I mean, thank you very much for sharing this with me because I can see that it is very distressing for you as well. Mm. And I, and obviously important and moving. And I wonder whether those incidents, especially the, the first one, is what's also informed your work essentially the kind of <laughs> desire to well as a psychologist are you intervene you're not intervening mm. but there is a there is a sense that you are trying to create a better relationship you're trying to create better a better life for people mm. and also that goes back to the where we started in this conversation about that bravery is about having the sort of conviction of your morals i mm. suppose and your moral code and standing up for that so I wonder whether that incident with the little mm. boy has had a has informed that kind of your memory of him has informed mm. much of your work. I think what what I know to be true about myself is that I have a, a kind of keen sense of justice mm. and what's fair. Um, and one of the truisms of therapy is that most of the time the person who is in front of me is there because of someone else. They are there because the people who were looking after them or should have looked after them hadn't gone to therapy themselves or they had been failed and they are working to recover from the relational failures they have always experienced. So there's a kind of inherent unfairness in therapy. And I do often find myself saying, you shouldn't be here. You know, you were the victim of neglect or abuse Mm. or pain or loss and it's you're trying to bring the pieces of yourself back together and it's not fair that you're having to do that it's not fair that you're having to take the time and the expense the resource to do that but here we are yeah this is the absurdity of it Mm. here we are and so and and I do feel that you know when often you know people will tell me about these ways and, and and again patients will feel that as well they will say she doesn't know how much she hurt me. She has no idea. She gets to enjoy my successes because I've done well for myself despite, in mm. spite of her. And it's unfair. So there's, you know, you, there's a lot of unfairness and injustice that you have to hold in, in therapy. And I think, I think certainly that part runs through it. I mm. kind of, and I suppose in, in both of these cases, both of the kind of vignettes, there was a younger person who couldn't defend themselves. They couldn't protect themselves. Mm. And they were dependent on the aware, capable adults around them to defend them. And certainly in the first instant, they were failed. And mm. I, I, I think it was the second story. I don't, I don't know. What, she would have had to go back with him, 
I made a police report. I, she would have had to go back with him. Um, and I don't know what memory she will have of it. Mm. And I, I can only hope that somewhere in her mind, she knows that someone stepped up for her. Mm. You're obviously, um, you know, great proponent of therapy but for anybody <laughs> listening to this and which I I you know thoroughly agree with but sometimes it isn't something that's accessible no. it might not financially practically be for somebody listening to this well aware of wanting to get this kind of help mm. or where what advice would you offer about how to where to go what to do it's really hard I would I mean of course start with all of the possibilities so don't kind of look around and, and hear how hopeless it is and not try mm. you know do go to your GP do go to third sector places like mind mm. and you know um anybody who trains as a therapist worked for several years for free in as in the voluntary sector or various places and GP practices and so forth so do ask it's always worth asking I know people go onto social media to look for health advice some of it is really dubious and I worry about people being kind of getting a kind of secondary harm so one of the things I'm really worried about is people thinking that there is more wrong with them than there really is because they read a lot of these posts that say five signs that you you're have this. anxiety <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they just and actually what you're experiencing is a very normal reaction yes. to your experience and it doesn't mean that there is something diagnosable or intractable or fundamentally mm. wrong about you one of the reasons I wanted to make mm. this podcast actually was because exactly because of those five signs you have anxiety and I was thinking, well, what about being told you are brave and you yeah. are courageous rather than this sort of like idea that anxiety is something that is spreading amongst everybody and everyone has it as though it's a condition which they're right. all, you know, all and kind of catching from one another in a way. <laughs> yeah. And I'm really interested by the idea of whether courage and bravery and understanding the innate absurdity of mm -hmm. life that we're talking about might be you know a message that people could is useful to hear yes and I, I think what is useful for people to hear and to know is that and, and again you can look back onto the history of, of the species is that we're largely resilient mm. you know we get through um and we don't I don't think there's any of us that get through completely unscathed <laughs> um but we get through and I think people that should be your starting point wherever you are in all likelihood, you will get through. And, and also, because I think one of the other things that becomes an additional burden and a, an, ad an additional kind of something to flog oneself with is that I'm the only one. Yeah. And, and I think that's why heartbreak songs are... I think they're almost a gift to humanity, right? Because when you have your first heartbreak, <laughs> or your second, or your yeah. third, <laughs> in particular your first one, there is that feeling that I'm, I'm uniquely broken or rejected or abandoned and, and I'll never recover from this or I'll never love again and no one will love me. And then you just open up any kind of music collection. <laughs> And you will hear the scores and scores of people who have been exactly where you are. And there is solace in that. And there is there is shared humanity mm. in that. Yeah, humanity, exactly. There is that kind of um, that being seen in the mm. lyrics. So I suppose to understand innate human resilience, I would then focus on, rather than anything to do with, say, 
depression, anxiety, did I, I would focus on the tenets of self-compassion, mm. um, which include that sense of shared humanity. I am human and to be human is to be flawed. And so when I fuck up, that's fine. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that's just a function of my existence as a human being and that's okay. Um, and that we all experience pain. And again, that's part of being human. And, and the mindfulness part of it, and the mindfulness is about kind of, again, taking that perspective and going, oh, look, there's a human being suffering a human experience. Let me extend her or mm. him a bit of kindness and some grace and some generosity. And we know it helps us to be more resilient, that not seeing it as a fundamental failing or flaw helps you helps you to recover understanding that you and you and you and you have all been through it as well helps you mm. to recover um and so whilst you wait for therapy <laughs> those would be the things i would look at um how do i build my capacity for self-compassion how do i take care of myself in mm. this period and if you focus on those things often they become self-generating mm. because if you start looking after yourself, you start to believe you're someone who's worth looking after. And if you're someone who's worth looking after, then you might be someone who's worth being loved. Mm. And it can be just that process that kind of helps to pull you out. Is there any other kind of advice for somebody listening needing to feel brave? Sure. Yeah. So I would say don't think of bravery as a thing. Mm. It as a, for me, it is about acting in line with your values. And so being clear on what your values are. And there are literally card games that help you do that. Yeah. <laughs> I have, I have, um, I've got a resource on my website, which is the values card sort, where you can literally download and do the exercise and work out what's important for you. And there are no right and wrong answers. That's the other thing. Like there isn't, a value that makes you a good person. Um, your values are your own and they're important to you for idiosyncratic reasons that are unique to you and your experience. And But being clear on what those are helps you to make clearer decisions. And that doesn't mean never making a mistake, but it means being able to look back on that decision. And even if it didn't work out the way you wanted, knowing that you did so with the best information that was available at the time. Mm. And often that's the only solace that we have. Yeah. And that it was founded in something <laughs> It was founded good, in something real, yeah. yes, and true mm. and honest. And mm. your sense of your, your own integrity then mm. doesn't, isn't wounded by the outcome. Mm. Would you share your talisman with me? So actually... I don't have you one. You don't have a talisman. And I did, because I did, this question came through beforehand yeah. and I did think, and I, and I don't have one. And I think that that's because, I think it's because of that tension where I try not to imbue things, yeah. exterior things with too much meaning because I, I, and I don't know why this is, like I've never had my house burn down, um, but I do sometimes think, if I lost everything, I need to be able to feel that I could carry on. Mm. And I think when a lot of meaning is imbued into things outside of yourself and things that aren't people, perhaps, you're in, it's, it's risky, mm. I suppose. And also it's the idea of um, 
Maybe having it. I mean, I do like talismans, mm. bits of and, and jewelry, I, funny I things. I sometimes have patients you, use them. So if yeah. they go, if they're going into a difficult conversation, they will have a pebble or something, something in their pocket yeah. just to help ground them. So it's not that I don't see the value in them. I just. But maybe what we were talking about about not holding on too tight and mm. seeing the absurdity of things and allowing yourself to tumble and free fall is rather beautifully linked to the idea of not holding too tightly onto a physical <laughs> object. So it's incredibly wise and. Um, lovely that you don't have a talisman. <laughs> Kimberly, it's been a real, real privilege to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I have been thinking about my conversation with Kimberly a lot, especially this morning. My youngest three children started school at completely new schools in America where we've moved. They've moved from a very small rural village school in Oxfordshire to a very large, um, my daughter's gone to a junior high school, and yes, she has a locker. That's one of the questions I've been asked most often. Does she have a locker? And she does. And my younger sons have gone to an elementary school. I could feel their nerves as I walked them to school this morning. And I felt nervous for them too. And I also felt proud of them at the way that they're sort of embracing and facing and, um, you know, dealing with this new challenge of going into completely unknown environments and much, much bigger, bigger schools than they've been used to. And it made me think a lot about what Kimberly said about the sort of mirage of adult life, I suppose, and that we look at other people and think, oh, that person has got it sorted and that person knows what they're doing. But the fact is we are absolutely all making it up as we go along. And that is the same for the kids. They're kind of learning as we go. I had a real moment on Friday afternoon where I was at an induction for my daughter's new school. And I suddenly felt absolutely exhausted by the unfamiliarity of my life. And I longed for the comfort of friendship. And I realized that we think about comfort often in relation to food or soft clothing or, or a comfortable, warm place to be. But actually, I wanted the comfort of friendship. I just longed to be with a, you know, an old friend whose presence I kind of understood and, and they understood me. That way of talking where you can talk with kind of innuendo and jokes, shared jokes, shared history. And I just sort of longed for that feeling of being able to relax into, a, into an old friendship. Um, and the sense of the new environment around me felt quite exhausting and quite adult. And I was thinking about what Kimberly said about, you know, that we're all, we're all making it up and that none of us really, really know what we're doing. And I've never, I think, been more aware of that than I am right now, that I am absolutely kind of, I, I think I've used the phrase free falling before. Sometimes it feels like clutching at straws trying to understand the, the new ways of living in a completely new place. Anyway, I've actually got to go and pick the kids up now from their new schools. Um, and I really hope that you will tune in for next week's guest. It will be my last, um, last conversation in this first series. I really hope to have a second series. And it goes without saying that if you had time to drop a comment or rate and review, that would be absolutely fantastic. Thank you for listening. I'm Clover Stroud, and I really look forward to sharing more brave conversations with some of the amazing guests I have lined up. 
To keep up with the episode drops, please follow Tiny Acts of Bravery on your podcast platform. And of course, I would be so grateful if you'd rate and review my podcast. And I will be back next week with another brilliant guest.